Chinese are, you know, being overly ethnocentric in assuming that Singapore uh, will follow uh, China. Singaporeans also uh, were somewhat frustrated by the complexity and some double dealing and so on with groups inside China itself. Singapore is not, and it, very hard to imagine it as just an appendage of China. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Franz Ocilia, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Julia Ann. Singapore is one of the most important economic players in Asia. Yet, as tensions between the United States and China continue to increase, it has found itself in a precarious situation. How to sustainably straddle the middle ground between these two superpowers while continuing to increase its economic power without alienating anyone? To answer this question and more, we're joined today by Professor Kent Calder. Professor Kent Calder is the interim dean of the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He also directs the Edwin Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies at Johns Hopkins Size and previously served at the school's vice dean for faculty affairs and international research cooperation. Prior to joining Size, Professor Calder served as the special advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Japan, the Japan chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and a professor at Princeton University. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. All right, Dr. Calder, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. So let's begin with some background on Singapore. How did such a small island become the economic hub that it is today? Well, uh, of course, there's the heritage of history uh, that's important. The fact that Singapore was became an entrepot port, a center for finance and uh, trade, uh, that was a key core uh, member of the British Empire uh, in the days when Britain, of course, was the uh, most powerful nation in the world and also was a strong supporter of free trade. Um, that heritage that began in 1819 of course, and then continued into the 1960s was a key part. But I certainly uh, don't think that that's all. Um, of course, Singapore's location, um, located in close proximity to uh, three of the four largest uh, economies in the world, uh, China, India, and Indonesia. The only one that's not close by is the United States. But of course, it, uh, Singapore also just developed a close relationship there. Uh, the fact that the international trading system of the 60s, when um, Singapore really began to emerge as a uh, independent uh, nation in its own right, was also extremely important. And the fact that uh, the East Asia uh, was growing so rapidly. Um, so the free market structure, I think, of the post-war world, the uh, institutions, the legal system that were created uh, under the British, the geographical location, um, and then also, of course, the, the uh, stable government in Singapore itself, and the fact that it was surrounded by many other nations that were in turmoil. I think all of those things together proved to be uh, crucial in the rise of, of Singapore as an economic hub 
which has been, of course, particularly rapid, I would say, in the last uh, 20 years. And leadership, far-sighted leadership, finally, I think, has also been a key part of that. So what is Singapore's position of importance in today's society or world? What role or interest does Singapore have either in Southeast Asia or what greater role does it have uh, in the global market as a whole? Well, uh, first of all, in Southeast Asia, of course, uh, it is a small country. Um, it's right next to Indonesia, uh, which has, uh, what, 50 times or so its population. Um, and yet, because it does have all of those it's stable politically and it has uh, global global uh, capabilities and the uh, local offices of multinationals. And also, I think very importantly, a discreet ASEAN first uh, foreign policy that allows it to uh, play an important coordinating role uh, between the region and the world. I think all of those at the regional level are important. If there were a single word for Singapore's position, however, I would really uh, call it a mediator, a mediator between Southeast Asia and the world, uh, a mediator uh, between uh, the Sinocentric world, which is becoming increasingly important, the world of greater China, of, of course, the PRC itself, the People's Republic of China, uh, but also um, as a part of China, uh, uh, Taiwan, um, and also uh, the expat networks around the region, Chinese networks that are very important. Uh, but, but also uh, very discreetly, of course, um, developing ties and preserving ties with the other uh, important nations of the region. Uh, with Indonesia, with India, uh, and not simply being uh, China-centric. And in that respect, I think uh, it's important, the other mediating role, key mediating role that uh, Singapore has is between the United States and Asia. This began uh, in the trusting relationship between uh, Singapore's founder, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, and uh, Henry Kissinger and the strategists who began building America's uh, relationships uh, with China as the Vietnam War was ending. Uh, I think those actually were crucial. And again, um, a mediating role. That, in a word, is what has made Singapore so important, that it can be a mediator. And um... Professor Calder, you mentioned that Singapore sees itself as this mediator between the Sino-centric world and the other players in the region, including the United States. So we want to jump uh, into what the relationship with China and the United States is respectively. So for my first question, I want to ask, what is Singapore's relationship with China and how is it unique from other countries' relationship with China? Well, uh, I think the most important thing to remember is that Singapore is over 70% ethnic Chinese, but a variety of, um, of uh, groups within China itself, Hokkien, Hakka, Chaochu, 
uh, a, a wide variety of Chinese ethnic ties with different parts of China, um, and also at some distance with China. It's both intimately related to China through ethnic ties and the networks that have been fostered over generations, but also the fact that it is at some distance with, with China. Um, and so it understands China well, and yet it's also somewhat detached uh, from China, particularly politically. It's important to remember the evolution, um, you know, over Singapore's early history. Um, Lee Kuan Yew, the, the government of Singapore uh, over its early years particularly was rather harsh uh, toward the Communist Party. Um, it, it, uh, it maintained distance from mainland China, particularly in the days uh, when China was under embargo and relations between the U.S. and China were, uh, were so poor. Um, and, and yet it understood China. So uh, that, I think, is a big difference. It has strong cultural ties. Um, with China, uh, but it also uh, moderates those by strong uh, ties with countries like the United States, and also, of course, very conscious effort to uh, to be pluralist, to be broad in its range of ethnic ties. Even the uh, the uh, holidays, there are Indian holidays, there are Buddhist holidays, there are Christian holidays. And yet, also, there are uh, Chinese holidays in Singapore. Uh, and the ethnic mix of the cabinet is also pronounced. Uh, Singapore has rarely had uh, ethnic Chinese uh, foreign ministers, for example. They've generally been uh, Indi of Indian origin. So uh, playing on diversity understanding China, but maintaining some distance with China. I think those are the key things that are unique about Singapore's relationships uh, with a, a country uh, that it knows very well. And Professor Calder, um, Pew Research um, found last year that Singapore has one of the highest approval ratings of China at 64%. And in the same poll, 70% of Singaporeans expressed confidence in Xi Jinping as well. Now, those to me are, are very interesting statistics as to, to foreign policy makers here in the United States. So I want to turn over to what is Singapore's relationship with the United States? And would you say that the U.S. and Singapore are allies or, or do they have a different type of relationship? I think it's important to remember that Singapore and the United States share some uh, deep and I think enduring uh, common interests. Um, both of them believe that the Asia-Pacific region or the Indo-Pacific, no matter how you want to characterize it, needs to be uh, pluralistic and also that it should be uh, market-oriented. They have subtly different, uh, I think, definitions on some issues of uh, pluralism, and uh, of course, Singapore does have democratic elections and so on, 
uh, but it's had a stronger pattern of one-party dominance, of course, than the United States has had. Uh, I, I think the um, characterization of, um, of my, in Singapore of, of being positive toward um, President Xi Jinping is not to say negative toward the United States. As I said, Singapore feels it does need the distance from China itself. Many people in Singapore, I think, feel uh, proud of their uh, Chinese origin. And uh, although, of course, it's a very diverse society also, and proud of the fact that uh, China has risen in um, a global standing over the years and that uh, President Xi in many ways has, uh, has uh, uh, fueled uh, that particular uh, rise of China. Um, so I don't think it might seem from the outside that those two things are inconsistent, but I don't think so. I think uh, the Chinese or the Singaporeans are both, um, you know, believe that their relation with the U.S. is needs to be strong. They have lots of foreign investment from multinational firms. Their economy is uh, market oriented. Um, and uh, they have been strong supporters of the global free trade system. At the same time, uh, they do have a broadly positive uh, relations with China. So uh, I don't think, to answer your question, I don't think the two are, Singapore and the United States, are allies in the traditional sense. Uh, they don't actually have a uh, codified uh, alliance agreement as, for example, the U.S. has with Japan or with the uh, Republic of Korea, with South Korea. Um, that said, there is a intense um, pattern of uh, defense cooperation and intelligence uh, cooperation uh, between uh, the two countries. Um, I remember I, when I was working for U.S. Embassy Tokyo as special advisor to our ambassador there, and our taxi receipts were all processed down in Singapore. And, uh, uh, you know, the checks that were cut uh, for the U.S. embassies across the Asia-Pacific region were from Singapore. Um, there are only about 500 or so uniformed U.S. military personnel in Singapore, but Singapore uh, repairs U.S. aircraft uh, or the uh, Changi uh, Naval Facility, of course, repairs U.S. aircraft carriers. It's the one place between Yokosuka and the Persian Gulf and Diego Garcia that's capable of that sort of thing. Um, Singaporean forces drill with their American counterparts at Luke Air Force Base in Arizona. So uh, there are many, many ways that the two countries cooperate in on security matters, uh, but without the traditional codified uh, and bureaucratized um, treaty uh, 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 arrangements. Yes, status of forces agreement, but not the more elaborate uh, treaty uh, arrangements. So it's not, it. I guess I would call Singapore a 
country with an intimate defense relationship and intelligence relationship with the U.S. That's also a, a global forum uh, for relationships around the world that is incidentally aligned also with the United States. And as China's power has grown in recent years and maybe tensions have increased between the U.S. and China, I think we really kind of saw Singapore play out part of its mediator role that you talked about as it has, you know, warned the U.S. and China multiple times to de-escalate um, tensions. I think just a few weeks ago, it warned the U.S. to not um, take such a hardline approach on China. And so I'm wondering if the pressure has increased for Singapore to make some kind of a clearer choice between the two nations as um, the tensions have grown? And if so, what steps has Singapore taken to gradually move closer to one country or another, if any steps at all? Well, that is an extremely uh, good question. In its heart of hearts, I think Singapore would like to be an honest broker, uh, which is also sufficiently autonomous that it can, of course, pursue its own national interests since it it's a relatively a small nation. It doesn't want to see um, any one power, particularly a power that wants to uh, control others, uh, you know, dominant in its neighborhood. Um, it, it is difficult. I think it is difficult for Singapore. Uh, the more tensions rise between China and the United States, the more difficult that is for Singapore. That's precisely why um, it wants to do its best to try to, you know, dampen uh, down those tensions. Uh, I would also say that the more oriented, market-oriented the Chinese economy itself is, the easier it is, uh, generally speaking, for China, or rather for Singapore. That said, um, if China becomes more... Um, uh, control-oriented, less market-oriented, that also opens some important niches uh, for Singapore. For example, the uh, electronics and uh, social media firms uh, in S Singapore, or in China, the Chinese firms, as the government has become uh, more constraining inside China, um, some of them have found uh, Singapore a more congenial. So it's a complicated thing for, for Singapore. Um, it, I, I would say that it uh, cannot, will not become strongly antagonistic to Singapore, or rather to mainland China, uh, but that it it will uh, so that as tensions rise it will take the side of wanting to trying to be an advocate for an open international system uh, which implicitly or tacitly i think does tend to align it uh, more with the united states but it is trying its best to dampen the tensions so that it doesn't have to make a choice. And earlier you did talk about how um, a majority of 
Singapore's population is actually ethnically Chinese. And I read some some scholars say that one of Singapore's biggest challenges it might actually be getting around China's misconception that because of this commonality that Singapore Singaporeans would think like them or you know eventually likely choose them if the occasion arises. I'm wondering what you think about this idea and whether or not this is the case or I mean if this is the biggest challenge that Singapore faces or one of them? Well, I think that certainly is is an important one um, because Singaporeans are, of course, they have lived in a very different environment. It's not exactly uh, that of Hong Kong. I think that's important to note. It's never been, Singapore has never been the, as laissez-faire um, as Hong Kong has been as an economy. The government has had more of a, a hand. Um, but of course, Singaporeans historically, right from the uh, even the 70% who do have Chinese uh, roots, and of course, there's another 30% that don't. Um, but, uh, that, but a century has passed uh, since a lot of those ties were developed and the political systems have been very different and Singapore's uh, order has never been uh, communist and Lee Kuan Yew um, works actually suppressed the Communist Party uh, in Singapore in its early days. So I think Chinese uh, are, um, you know, being overly ethnocentric in assuming that Singapore uh, will simply automatically uh, follow uh, China. Of course, Singapore has economic interests that uh, exactly as they are aligned with the global free trade system are also, of course, uh, deeply engaged with uh, deep ties uh, with China itself. There's been some um, mixed uh, experiences, however. I think, for example, of the Suzhou uh, Special Economic Zone, which uh, Li Kuan Yew and also Deng Xiaoping uh, directly uh, were involved with uh, across the 1980s. And uh, then local governments in Suzhou intervened and uh, uh, there were some sharp dealings at the local level and I think Singaporeans also uh, were somewhat frustrated by the complexity and some double dealing and so on with groups inside China itself. So things have not always been, um, you know, have, have not been easy between Singapore and uh, various uh, locations inside China itself, which again, I think leads one back to the feeling that this relationship will never be entirely uh, congruent and Singapore is not and it, very hard to imagine it as just an appendage of China. Professor Calder, as we've talked today, it seems that one of Singapore's main goals is to do everything in its power to not have or not put itself in a position where they have to choose a side between the United States and China. Now, as the relationship between the two biggest superpowers in the world continues to deteriorate. 
I want to know what do you believe will be the most significant points of tension or flashpoints in the coming years that may or may not force Singapore to choose between the United States and China? I know that you've already mentioned some, such as China potentially becoming less market-oriented, China's digital censorship, perhaps um, the, the decay of the open international system as well. Uh, could you please elaborate on those possibilities that might perhaps force Singapore to choose one side or the other? I, I've always been summoned to, I, you know, I do, maybe you know my supercontinent book. Um, I, I do believe that the relationships across the continent uh, between China and Europe, particularly, uh, especially Central and Eastern Europe, are, are growing stronger with the collapse of the Soviet Union and a power va vacuum uh, in the across the continent that's developed. Of course, BRI also uh, tends to do that. Um, but even though China in various dimensions is becoming more globally influential, uh, you know, it's, the, it's a big world out there. And it's very hard, for, uh, and again, China also is pluralistic internally. Um, so I just, I think it's very difficult, and China is so large. I mean, China's population, of course, is four times the United States. And communication systems and are, you know, not as developed in, internally uh, in, in many ways, not all as uh, in other ad advanced nations. So uh, I just, I guess I would say, think it unlikely that China becomes so dominant that it can force uh, choices uh, on other countries other than maybe a few that are extremely close by. And um, Singapore has so many global ties and they, are so important as a forum that they can foster all kinds of connections that are also important for China, that are so important for China that it, it really has, almost has to concede to them. There's, Singapore has more leverage, I would say, than uh, many people appreciate. To give you some examples, the, uh, the role that they play as a forum. Of course, they hosted uh, the summit between uh, Xi Jinping and, uh, and Taiwan uh, in the 19, uh, in the 2000s. Uh, they also hosted the summit between Kim Jong-un and uh, Donald Trump, which China did not particularly like, but which China, you know, couldn't control. Uh, and which had some important implications for China. And I think there's a Singaporean, um, uh, you know, leverage and so on that flowed from that. Uh, so I, you know, I do think that um, in, I guess what I'm saying is that uh, China, uh, uh, Singapore has many ways of financing uh, what is it potentially a painful uh, problem for them? Uh, what areas are going to be difficult? I think 
one uh, dilemma probably is uh, human the human well human rights question. Of course, that has been very very difficult for Hong Kong uh, in the wake of the national security law. Singapore has been, of course, it's it is not as uh, insistent on a Western uh, Western European or an Anglo-American uh, set of parameters in in that regard. So I don't think that is probably as difficult. You take artificial intelligence or you take uh, monitoring systems, CCTV monitoring systems, you know, both their development and their implementation. Those areas, uh, I don't, you know, the, the Singapore is not choosing um, explicitly a Chinese style system, but the antagonism to the Chinese system is not uh, the same as it would be in the United States. Um, it could be that in the uh, approaches to multinational corporations, uh, particularly some of the, so the major social media firms like Google and Microsoft and so on, uh, of course, the approaches that those uh, firms have to um, media is different from that of mainland China. But again, the different there, the environment in Singapore, the fact that it is for the, far, further away and less politically dependent on China than Hong Kong or other countries that are close by, gives it an autonomy that allows it to be um, not all things to all people, but certainly to have a face toward China that is congenial and also have a face toward the United States. You know, I, I do think that the dilemmas that are becoming painful in U.S.-China relations are also things that largely Singapore is able to finesse, at least from what I've seen so far. So in that same vein of like how Singapore might be able to finesse all of these um, points where there might have to be a decision to be made, they're able to finesse. Um, does that also signal that whatever, like if Singapore were to make some kind of a stronger decision, it would be all the more important? I guess in other words, whatever Singapore ends up doing, does that strongly affect um, other country in the region facing similar dynamics? Does it have enough influence that even if it doesn't make a strong decision, um, it makes any other decision, it could sway uh -huh. any other surrounding countries uh -huh. decisions as well. Well, you know, you, you use this term strong decisions. If this is a question of values, I mean, I do believe that there are values that Singaporeans hold, uh, the belief in, I think, markets, the belief in personal dignity for citizens of Singapore and so on. I Certainly there are some core values that uh, as individual Singaporeans may hold. I don't think in foreign policy that Singapore is a moral leader on uh, most, well, on on, on uh, the conventional human rights agenda. I would say that I, I think on issues like climate, there are important issues that do have moral dimensions like uh, global warming. 
on which I think uh, Singapore has taken strong and very productive stances. It's been on um, basics of uh, intellectual property protection. Uh, Singapore has, I think, uh, be, been uh, quite strong. Um, so it's a matter of what one means by strength and in what area. Um, I wouldn't say across the board that it's been a leader on values questions. It's, it's a more limited range of issues. Uh, its foreign policy generally, I think, is quite pragmatic. Uh, it wants to be well thought of uh, to a broad range of countries around the world and to deal uh, with each of them, uh, many of them quite pragmatically. Uh, it, it deals with North Korea. It deals with the United States. The fact that uh, the summit, the first summit between the United States and North Korea was held in Singapore is not by accident and flows from their pragmatism. So uh, would they be forced into what you call stronger positions? If you're, you know, will they be, take solidarity with, you know, some of the uh, groups in Hong Kong? I, on that, it might be as individuals you'll find that, but I would not think that the Singaporean government uh, would want to step into issues like that. Um, I, I think it's not going to step into issues relating to Xinjiang or to uh, things that China might consider to be internal matters. Um, but on, as I said, on climate, on uh, global free trade, on intellectual property protection, you know, on things like that, it will take a stand. So it really depends, I think, on the issue. So it sounds like to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, other than those three that you've listed on other wider geopolitical issues, it seems like if we were to see a decision from Singapore or a marked decision, it would be more likely as part of a natural or larger trend following other countries rather than like as its own first thing and as a leader of other countries in the region? Yes, I think that's, I think that is right. Um, because just it's in the nature of its position. It's a, it's a small country mm -hmm. that uh, does have to live in a dangerous, uh, in dangerous environment in a dangerous world. Now it can occasionally play what amounts to a pivotal leading role. If you think of the early uh, days of the U.S. overture to China, for example, Henry Kissinger's early overtures, um, you know, Lee Kuan Yew played a key role in those. And that was right at a cutting edge of global foreign policy. So it's not to say that China or that Singapore never plays a significant role on global issues, but on things that affect its own, um, you know, what should I say, its own security, its own broader interests, it tends to be a follower rather than a leader more, I think. And to wrap up, wrap up the podcast today, what can or should the United States do today um, and in the coming years to ensure that Singapore does not feel it has no other options but to follow mm -hmm. China's lead? 
in what ways can the U.S.-Singapore relationship and as an extension, the U.S. position in Southeast Asia be improved to avert such a scenario, um, in your opinion? Well, uh, I think one important thing is communication. One, uh, the U.S. needs to listen to what I think are rather subtle, very subtle views often uh, from Singapore, not only on China, but on the uh, international environment, because Singaporeans and uh, in, a, I think, an outstanding foreign ministry, um, but others, a brilliant, a lot of brilliant leaders. We've had some wonderful students at Hopkins from uh, Singapore. Uh, Singaporeans have their ear to the ground, uh, they're realists, uh, they have an understanding of important global developments. So I, I think that Singaporeans, uh, in terms of setting intellectual agendas, or at least being critiques, being harsh critiques of what otherwise could be naive uh, formulations, of Asia policy. Um, listening to Singapore is, is one aspect of this. Um, at various, at a whole series of levels, I've done so in the government, outside the government, uh, intellect with academic discussions. All of those, I think, uh, we need that kind of communication. Um, also, I think it's important to for the United States to to continue to be an advocate for a better world that includes a moral dimension, even if Singaporeans um, may find it hard to uh, you know to speak out uh, easily on those questions. Not only Singaporeans but others uh, in the region, I think, do appreciate. As long as the U.S. isn't provocative, uh, the, I, sometimes Americans don't appreciate well enough, I think, the importance of face or the possibility that they might be perceived uh, in a historical vein that really violates America's own history. I, it was not the traditional imperial power in Asia. That was the British. It wasn't the Americans. But uh, if... Americans are too hard and too harsh in condemnation. Um, some of what they have to say, I think, can be confused with, uh, you know, dictation and arrogance and so on. So the U.S. has to watch out uh, for that sort of thing. It's a it's a delicate combination of standing for something and yet not being too imperious in insisting on it. Finally, I do think maintaining America's own uh, strength at home. Uh, de defense capabilities are one thing, and I think that involves partly not getting into, uh, you know, misguided adventures or staying too long, as we may very well have done in the case of Afghanistan or possibly even uh, Vietnam in many of the uh, our foreign policy commitments to be realistic about what we can do, but then to, uh, to stand by the commitments that we make. Those kind of things, I think, make life 
easier for Singapore because fundamentally Singapore's interests, I think, and those of the United States are aligned. And as Lee Kuan Yew and his successors across the years have said, you know, a strong United States is important in and in Singapore's interest. We have a lot to uh, learn from one another. And although we will, are not, and I don't think we will be classical uh, defense allies, we are extremely important partners in the Asia Pacific and the Indo-Pacific as well. Professor Calder, thank you so much for joining us today on such an insightful episode. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, Julie, it's a real pleasure to uh, speak with you today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.